This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hello, and welcome to Business Breakdowns. I'm your host, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Today, we'll be breaking down the world's largest e-commerce company, Alibaba. Alibaba was founded in 1997 by Jack Ma and almost 20 other co-founders as an online bulletin board that allowed small Chinese manufacturers to tell buyers around the world that they were open for business. Today, Alibaba operates a sprawling ecosystem of businesses that includes e-commerce marketplaces, cloud computing, food delivery, logistics, and financial services. In this breakdown, we discuss the staggering scale of Alibaba's business, how Alibaba went from copycat to innovator, and the looming threat of the next generation of Chinese juggernauts, and how competition is viewed differently in China versus the West. For this episode, I'm joined by a special guest host, Claire Cormier-Tilke, who many of you will remember from her appearance on Invest Like the Best. Claire is the Managing Director of Asia Pacific for Heinz and brings her firsthand view of what Alibaba has built in China and her daily experience using the company's products. To help us break down Alibaba, we're joined by Ram Paramiswaran, the founder and managing partner of investment firm Akihedron Capital. Ram has invested in some of the biggest Chinese companies of the past decade, including Pinduoduo and ByteDance, and is the first person I thought of when wanting to break down Alibaba. I hope you enjoy this business breakdown. Ram, can we start just by level setting for a moment and understanding what Alibaba is? Because it's a name that so many people here and are familiar with, and it's so often compared to analogs like Amazon. Can you maybe just unpack that a little bit for us? So Alibaba, I think, is one of the most fascinating businesses in the world. And in America, we tend to have these simplistic views of business. The X of why is this? And Alibaba is an enigma even today, even though the company is well-known. They had a charismatic founder who gets into trouble for all the wrong reasons sometimes, but a, a brilliant, legendary founder. But Alibaba is an enigma. So first of all, people say it's Amazon. It is actually not Amazon. The business model, the original business model, is monetized on advertising. So it's actually Google in many ways. So even the assumption that it sells e-commerce, yes, it sells e-commerce, but it monetizes mostly on advertising is actually very, is an unknown fact in the industry for the lay observer. Number two, people don't understand the scale of Alibaba. It's bigger scale than Amazon. Amazon is subscale compared to Alibaba. So let me give you a few stats about this. In 2015, Alibaba sold $500 billion in volume across their two main e-commerce properties, Tmall and Taobao. That's 500 billion. In 2020, they more than doubled that to 1.2 trillion. And in 2025, by my estimates, they will double again to 2.5 trillion. If you put this in context, in 2015, they were 10% of total retail spending in China. In 2020, they were 20% of retail spending in China. In 2025, they're 25% of retail spending in China. So this is a utility at scale where every Chinese consumer that effectively goes on the internet 
buys Alibaba products first, and then also uses other stuff. So if you take the, an analog of Netflix in the US, when you cut the cord for the first time, or you're a young student coming out of college and you never buy a cable subscription in your life, the first thing, what do you buy? You buy Netflix. And then you may layer on Hulu and you may layer on other on-demand services, but you start with Netflix first. And that's Alibaba in China. It is the primary medium for almost everybody to satisfy their human needs uh, via e-commerce. So that is a scale of Alibaba. It's a, this is a country scale business. Give you one more stat here, right? They have 800 million active customers in 2020. Each person on average bought something on Alibaba twice a week, two times a week. This does not include groceries and food. This does not include living. This includes discretionary buys on Alibaba twice a week. And what's amazing is five years ago, they were mostly fashion and apparel. And now they've gotten to almost every single category of any lifestyle in China. And what's incredible is a typical user starts year one buying around $400 per year and by year five goes to $2,000 per year. So these cohorts just keep on maturing as they become richer because the Chinese GDP is still small per capita compared to the American GDP. So they get richer, they spend more. Therefore, it's very easy to model out cohort analysis to double Alibaba again over the next five years. So that's 2.5 trillion in our estimates from 1.2 last year. And this is only in discretionary spending. And then you've got other stuff on top of this. I was so excited to talk to you about this because how many times a day am I touching Alibaba in different parts of my life? And you know, sitting there realizing, okay, in, in grocery orders to get food in the morning. But then also Alibaba is an owner of the newspaper where I absorb some of the best news on the city and on the region. And that's to say nothing of the Alipay that I needed to be able to pay for the DD or the taxi to get where I was going. How do you explain it for someone who's just trying to get their head around the way they touch their customers? Yeah, and that's the hot part. All I told you was just the commerce business. So on top of that, they have the world's leading cloud business in China. So as Chinese enterprises and SMBs get digitized to go to the cloud from traditional on-premise hosted solutions, Ali Cloud gets 40 to 50 cents on every incremental dollar that's spent on the cloud. So just imagine, we have not even at the beginning of hundreds of potential SaaS companies being built out of China. And who's going to power all that? It's going to be Alibaba. That's the second piece, which, by the way, is growing north of 50% in a very healthy manner, EBITDA positive already. And so Alibaba looks a lot like what Amazon looked like in the initial days of Amazon Web Services. And people don't even value it that much right now because, one, I don't think people really understand the power of cloud in China yet. There are questions about whether Chinese enterprises even pay for cloud services like they pay in America and a bunch of other reasons. That's the commerce business for consumers. That's the cloud business for enterprises. And then you have the Alipay business, which is a 33% equity-owned business by Alibaba, was incubated in Alibaba back in the early 2000s as a escrow mechanism to pay merchants. There was no real closed-loop payment system in China till Alipay came around back in the early 2000s. And it's just the way eBay needed PayPal to make sure that, hey, money got transferred only when the consumer saw the product right? Alibaba had to do something very similar. But our Ant Financial is likely going to be even bigger than Alibaba over time. 
and financial is effectively the one of the two de facto ways for every Chinese consumer to manage their financial lives. It's the biggest money market product in the world. It's bigger than JP Morgan, right? It has wealth management products. It has insurance products. It has lending products. And so, and it's all 30% owned by Alibaba. And even more interesting, this is about ecosystem control, right? So you talked about ordering food. Those are all adjacencies. In the big picture, all the stuff you talked about don't even matter. They will all become 10 to $20 billion businesses over time. But in the scale of the core business of and financial, the commerce business and the cloud business, those are all little ands that don't really matter. So it's funny, those are standalone big businesses in America and their own rights. But because Alibaba is a country scale business, it doesn't matter. So you've used the term country scale a couple of times. And when it comes to country, I mean, China is enormous, but it also has so much complexity because it is changing so much. But also just in the time since Alibaba's founding has evolved greatly. Can you tap into what you really mean when you say country scale and what we should really take from that? So Alibaba could be a country of its own, right? Think about the GDP of Alibaba is 2.4 trillion in five years and 1.2 trillion right now. When you are processing that scale of volume, you are a country, effectively. That's what I mean. Second, Alibaba has 800 million average active customers and financial has even more. Means that 60% or 70% of the total population use an Alibaba service. We're talking about billions here, right? We're not talking about a few millions. Number two. Number three is, as you mentioned earlier on, Claire, Alibaba's products affect every part of your life, whether you're a consumer or whether you're a business. I've actually not seen any company in the world that has that level of impact on a certain country, right? Let's put it this way. Amazon disappeared tomorrow, theoretically speaking. Yes, we'll be affected, but a Walmart and a Target and other e-commerce companies will take its place. If Alibaba disappeared tomorrow, I suspect there'll be much more impact on the ecosystem, in fact, on the Chinese economy. There's so many different directions that we can take this. And one thing that jumps out to me is within China, only 8% of the Chinese live in cities that are well-known outside of China, say. So Shanghai, Beijing, and you know Guangzhou. So the majority of folks, two-thirds of them are living in tier three, tier four, tier five cities. That would be the equivalent of Mesa, Arizona, probably, something of that nature. How does... Alibaba think about balancing its business or strategy between tier one China and then all of the rest? So I think for this, you've got to go back to the history of Alibaba a little bit. So let's talk about the different layers in which Alibaba was built, because it was built in layers. It's not like Jack Ma and his 20 co-founders woke up one morning and said, oh, we're going to build a hundred product company off the go. They couldn't do that. The reality is what I find fascinating about Baba and frankly, I admire the company is they, along with Tencent, was the first company that bridged what I call the old China and the new China. So I've been fortunate to be invested in what I call new Chinese companies, right? Whether it's a Meituan, whether it's a ByteDance, whether it's a Pindodo, which is a very new phenomenon where the CEOs were Western educated. They got there. They used to work in American companies and they knew what machine learning was and they built it more with the Silicon Valley ethos. Uh, definitely ByteDance did. But Jack Ma was a teacher, an English teacher, right? 
And so he was the first person, in my opinion, who fought against the odds to create one of the lasting companies in what I call Gen 1 Web China. This was along with Sina and Baidu and most of the other companies outside of Tencent and Baba, they become irrelevant right now. They've already been disrupted, right? Yet Baba kept evolving itself. So let's first start with what happened at Baba. What did they start with? In 1999, Baba was a copycat of eBay. So most of Baba's early products were copycatted products, right? There was no reason for them to innovate, right? They saw what was happening in the US and they said, well, let's build the same thing for China because they had the big macro view in the world that things would go from point A to point B. So they first started with Alibaba.com, right? Which is the B2B marketplace to procure products for between merchants and suppliers. Then they started eBay, which was Taobao in 2003. Then they needed to obviously build Alipay, which was Alipay was the escrow mechanism for Taobao merchants. Then they built Tmall by 2008. Tmall was the first, as they got to scale, became a branded business where Nike and Adidas and local Chinese brands would create shops on Tmall. Then they built Alibaba Cloud in 2009 because they saw how Amazon would take their infrastructure and give it to the world. So for the longest time, they were copycats. Remember, they don't own logistics, right? It's a very asset-like business that generates 65% plus EBITDA margins, okay? So the ethos in Alibaba is all about platform creation. Take friction to zero, create collective good for everybody and let everybody benefit in the process and be the meta aggregator on top of it. So then they layered on logistics and then they layered on SaaS applications. Then they layered on home goods and food and so on and so forth. So the story on Alibaba is not one of waking up in 1999 and imagining this behemoth to be built. The ethos really is let's reduce friction to the maximum degree we can and allow everybody to enter the ecosystem and then create an auction. That's the ethos in Alibaba on almost everything. So if you had that ethos, and if you think about how Alibaba was built, it was 20 co-founders. Now, it is to Masa-san's credit that he saw the genius in Jack Ma, and you know, frankly, Alibaba is a big part of SoftBank's value creation. Now, that's exceptional. But I was an investor back in the day, if I looked outside in, I could not have understood what Alibaba did. It doesn't make sense because it breaks every rule of the way Western companies are built. So when it comes to this long tail of consumers in China, Alibaba was the perfect framework to tap into all of China. Why? Because let's talk about 92% of the people living in tier two to tier six cities, the 700 plus cities in China that most people haven't heard of. Well, If you had to build all that infrastructure via first party, put out your own warehouses, put your own kind of supply chains, put your own last mile delivery networks, it is an impossible and capital intensive task. You need infinite capital for that. But if you created a network of local suppliers and connected them up via logic and software, which is what the Sinyao network did, well, then you have something. Now, what is even more interesting is As you build this web of depth of merchants, as new merchants came on, they went to Alibaba first to sell their wares. So in the beginning, you had a offline merchant who said, okay, I need an online presence and let me be a seller on Taobao. But over time, what happened? Hundreds of thousands of micro entrepreneurs who also wanted to sell either a service or a product or a brand 
instead of opening their shop in a street in a tier four city, went direct to Alibaba and started selling their products. Now it's funny, right? That was when I think we in the Western world right now, we're now copycatting Alibaba. What do you think Shopify is? Shopify gives millions, hopefully millions of consumers the chance to build their own storefronts online virtually by giving them the tools to make them successful. So Alibaba, I would argue, was the original Shopify. And what is Shopify doing? They're turning on Shopify Pay because they want their own internal ecosystem to allow transactions to be done within merchants and consumers. Now Shopify is building out third-party warehouses. That sounds a lot like Sign Me Out to me. So it's funny, right? The copier has clearly, in my opinion, become the innovator. And that's how they reach 1.7 billion people in China, not by building everything full stack. Because remember, today we are in a world where capital is effectively free and capital is infinite. But this is a point in time. Capital was always scarce. And Alibaba grew at a time when capital was scarce. So they built an empire by forging alliances. You just referenced something there in Sinao, their logistics firm that they launched, but then they're also an investor in other third-party logistics, 3PL groups. It really does change the physical infrastructure of cities, of China. Did they look at that access, that physical access as part of their moat? You know, every business eventually, Claire, I think becomes an omni-channel business. There's nothing called a pure digital business anywhere in the world anymore when you achieve some scale. So you take the example of food delivery in America. Well, you started with pure marketplaces. Eventually, you've got to also build logistics and build the full stack solution. I think it's a very healthy interplay. A few years after Alibaba was started, there came about a full stack solution company called JD, right? Which is also a phenomenal company in China. And JD's entire shtick was, well, your third-party Taobao marketplace does not really stand for trust and quality. Well, let me build a first-party business to compete with you, and I will own the entire logistics stack because the theme was, okay, well, if an e-commerce company wins on price selection and most importantly, convenience, well, how can Sinyao with its hodgepodge collection of thousands of logistics suppliers around the world promise two to three-day or four-day delivery? But JD could because the logistics were in their own hands, which means they obviously had to go to higher AOV products and higher margin products in the beginning, which means their categories were restricted in the beginning to typically electronics and apparel. But if you have that hodgepodge layer of a collection of the long tail of suppliers in terms of logistics, it's only a question of how deeply do you utilize the network? You can throw the long tail of categories on it. And they were also lucky at a point in time that in the early 2000s, the Chinese consumer arguably was not discerning about expecting stuff at her doorstep in one day or six hours or four hours. Alibaba's genius is in the execution of taking that typical seven-day, in the early days, seven to 10-day transportation to delivery to home kind of experience to now six days by constant. And, and again, it's all about densification, right? Initially, you have people who ship from, let's say, Beijing to Qingdao, for example, right? Now, over time, you have two or three suppliers who deliver within, I don't know, 400 meters to where you are. So this is about densification. And that's a layered sign of approach. What happened over time is because they don't own the actual physical suppliers, 
the smart thing to do was take equity stakes in a bunch of these companies. So then, because you own equity stakes in those companies, maybe you have a shot at getting preferred capacity from those service providers. So while JD Build JD Logistics, a standalone, high-quality, self-contained ecosystem for itself, this was Alibaba's hack. Let's build a software layer on top of all these suppliers of delivery systems, and then let's put equity stakes in every one of them so we have soft control on them. What is amazing about Alibaba is because they grew up in an environment of frugality, and they grew up in an environment where nothing was given to them, they always had their hack their way into scale via an asset light methodology. That, I think, is what's special about Alibaba. Nothing was given to them. They could take nothing for granted. It seems like one of the most interesting modern trends amidst the, I don't know, whatever generation you want to call it, the ByteDances of the world, the Pinduoduo's of the world, that the pressure on the core e-commerce business you know, obviously it's still massive, but there are other players in the ecosystem now that really matter that have some real market share. I think Pinduoduo in particular has incredible numbers. What are your observations of just like the right or most interesting business models to monetize commerce generally in China, where if they're Google, not Amazon, they're monetizing through advertising. Just talk us through like watching that development and what the ecosystem looks like today and what companies are now relevant in that core base of Alibaba, that commerce engine. There are three companies that are relevant for e-commerce in China. There is JD, which I think is a full stack, first party, most Amazon-like business. So JD would always call themselves the Amazon of China, though I would argue when it comes to a technology backbone and technology infrastructure, uh, they are quite poor compared to Amazon. And Alibaba is much more, again, more technologically superior to JD than, than JD claims to be. The company I am most excited about, and I've been invested in them, luckily, for a long time, is Pindodo. But Pindodo, again, is an advertising model. It's not a commerce model. Pindodo is and Alibaba are the same. And Pindodo is just a new version of Alibaba. Equally aggressive, if not more. The technical, whatever it is, is batshit crazy at how they execute stuff. It's a really impressive company. It is nuts how they execute against. And again, they have to do it, right? Because you've got to understand, the competitive intensity in China puts us to shame in this country. It is 10 hundred times more competitive in China to do anything. So the question to ask is, how does a Pindodo emerge under the shadow of an Alibaba? How does a ByteDance emerge from the shadow of a Tencent? And Tencent and Alibaba are no slouches when they see competition they try every attempt to squash the competition, right? It's just the way these companies are built. If you had to talk about the competitive landscape, it is Pindodo, Alibaba, and JD. And then you've got a longer tail of smaller companies like VIP Shop, but they're not that relevant right now. I'm pretty confident there'll be other upstarts that come over time. And I would also put Meituan in the mix. And I'll tell you why I put Meituan in the mix. So people talk about competition as if it is a bad thing. I think competition is a wonderful thing. Right. Number two is think about the market share Alibaba had in China. At one point in 2015, they were 80% of all e-commerce in China. That doesn't make sense. You can never have an 80% market in e-commerce ever. I mean, look at America, right? Like even at Walmart at its peak, we had 15% of market share. You just can't have it. It's not healthy. It doesn't make sense. But just because you lose market share doesn't mean that the company is losing relevance. In fact, Amazon loses market share to Wayfair and other companies growing even faster than Amazon. 
it doesn't mean Amazon is losing relevance in the country. So looking at market share on a standalone basis, in my opinion, it's not the right way to look at e-commerce companies. It's about how many incremental dollars you collect and how big do you get over scale and how many dollars can you create when you're at scale in terms of EBITDA to, imp- to apply to other products to further strengthen your competitive mode. To level set, everybody attacks Alibaba in a different way. When you are the biggest, baddest person in town, everyone's gunning for you in one way or the other. So competition in itself doesn't really worry me. The question is, how do you execute? Because Alibaba is an aggressive company, was an aggressive company, it's just part of their DNA. One, you just need an even more aggressive competitor like Pindodo, who will not take no for an answer. Second is in China, what, is, what I've observed over years is, this is all about a battle for the relevance of user mindshare. China is a battle for user mindshare, right? So number one, so anybody who, can, who has a product that can vitally grow and gain user market share maybe has a chance of scaling a business. What did JD do? JD just said, we're going to focus on the bigger cities. We're going to build full logistics. We're going to stand for trust and quality. And we're going to be the offline retailer. Very understandable business model. Our gross margins are going to be lower. We will probably will be cyclical in nature. We won't offer all, all categories. And our scale of users will be lower than Alibaba. But that's fine with us. Pindo, though, took a very different approach to business building. They were a gamified business model, which basically offered product for very, very, very cheap. Again, this is back to reducing friction for the user. Alibaba scale, and Patrick, we've talked about it before in a previous podcast, but reducing friction is probably the number one reason for internet businesses to scale. So let's talk about that. Alibaba built Taobao on the back of aggregating hundreds of thousands, not millions of small merchants, existing and new, by taking costs to zero. eBay was in China when Alibaba was born. And eBay, by the time decisions got routed via telegram between the Bay Area and Beijing, it was game over. This is also why Amazon had to eat humble pie in China. Chinese competitors run circles around American companies. So American companies are much better off working with than working against them. So number one. Number two is you take friction to zero. So what did Pindodo do? They took prices to zero effectively by giving very cheap prices to consumers. How did they finance those prices? The hack that they used was they procured directly from the manufacturer or from a distributor. So the key inside in Pindodo is in a country where between manufacturing and a retail store or a retail store online, there are multiple levels of distributors, right? Wholesalers, city distributors, county distributors. Well, what if you collapse all that? One, you, your prices are much lower. And two, manufacturers just want to move large volumes. So if you aggregate them via a gamified front end, like a Groupon in many ways, well, you could build a business model around that. So Pindo, though, it's all about consumer mindshare and user time. So they scale their user base. And in fact, the reason I still remember the way Pindodo went public, it was in the shadow of darkness. They filed on the 4th of July. And many people are the common refrain in America was this is some sort of like pump and dump Chinese fraud. It could not be more different than the truth. We in the Western world often don't understand the kinds of games and wars that Chinese companies have to play in order to survive against something like Alibaba. And so that's often where I've seen opportunities come by for us where, you know, the world thinks X and, you know, we can think something different. But my point is 
It's all about a quest for user mindshare. So Pindodo built that. And then once they did that, they are some of the best execution people in the world, period. So they were able to go build that out. They got to scale. Now they are six, 700 million people in active buyers. Now they have increased the categories. And I would argue that Pindodo benefited from all the infrastructure that Alibaba built out for them. Alibaba trained for 20 years. They trained merchants to have amazing tools and put them on these systems first. And they educated two generations of merchants. And now those merchants just saw a new channel called Pindodo and just jumped onto it. So I would argue if Alibaba had not done what they did to educate a country on e-commerce, Pindodo wouldn't exist. Now, of course, the vagaries of nature are such that Pindodo now is a real competitor of Alibaba. Now, this discussion cannot end without a discussion on Meituan, which is one of my favorite companies in the world. And Meituan is a lot like JD, right? It is full stack food delivery first, but then over time, what has happened is they started with food delivery and excellent kind of scale and performance and execution over years. But then they got into accommodations and hotels and they had some, I would argue, some success there, but not much. Where there is huge success and where there's potential disruption to the Alibaba model now is the same phenomenon we're seeing in America right now. See, Amazon was the alpha predator in America when it came to e-commerce. They did it on the back of price, selection, and convenience. We can get almost 80% of what we want within two days in America from Amazon. Now, DoorDash comes around, Instacart comes around and say, I'll get you the same thing by aggregating the existing retailers in America and bring it to you in three hours. So how does Amazon compete with that? So this is what Meituan does in China, right? Over time, the biggest trend in China right now is this thing called community group buying around food. Everyone wants fresh food, especially with the pandemic, delivered to their homes. And everyone has a version of it, right? Meituan has a version of it. Pindo Do got into it in size. Alibaba obviously is fighting back and figuring its own strategy out. And Didi is getting into it. But I think Baba will get there as well in their own two-hour delivery strategies. The Pindo Do example, because it's really pushing into not just group buying, but also the social and the gaming aspect that we're seeing in other different companies and strategies within China. Is it a bit like Twitter and Clubhouse? I mean, Twitter is a big ecosystem. It's sort of the homepage for many people's internet and mobile experience. And then Clubhouse rolls out and captures this zeitgeist, but then Twitter has spaces. And so there's almost this threat of, we could do that, and we can push into it. And if we do, then we've got a bigger moat to begin with. Is that an analog or is that off? It is somewhat of an analog. The hope and expectation I have is because Alibaba is good at executing. You know, listen, innovation is not the purview or the sole privilege of the large companies, right? In fact, the farther away from them you are, the more innovative you have to be for a survival perspective. So, you know, Meituan comes up with this community group buying strategy, and it works, our expectation is Alibaba will actually just copy it, right? And do an equally good job and provide the same service level and quality for its 800 million users. The Clubhouse Twitter example, I would argue, is is a little different. We've seen many avatars of that in the past. We've seen, so Twitter bought Vine back in the day, but they ultimately put the kibosh on that. Before we had Clubhouse, we had House Party, which was extremely viral in nature, which was an amazing product. We now have interesting 
companies in Cameo and Patreon. And so far, what I've observed is Twitter did not copy fast. Facebook copied incredibly fast. Snapchat innovates and Facebook copies. That historically used to be the situation. And we always thought Twitter would not copy anybody. Finally, Twitter seems to have got its act together. They finally seem to have shed their technical debt. If you watch the analyst day promise to double the speed of delivery of products, which is good. So while Clubhouse is an awesome phenomenon, and it's a phenomenon if you've been on it, I would argue that Twitter understands that they have to copy and copy fast sales. They themselves are standing on the battle of irrelevance at some point in time, but I suspect that Twitter will do a good job. So I think the analogy is reasonable, Claire. Alibaba has just shown a history of executing, both innovating on its own or copying competitors or quashing competitors. We have a bunch of techniques that got them into trouble recently, but they are an incredibly aggressive organization in almost everything they do. One thing they may not have done very well is buying stuff and then investing outside the country. That seems to be questionable to me as well. I have a question for both of you since you've got a lot more experience in China than I do. Ram, a couple of times you've mentioned this concept of aggression or competition level or, you know, will quash, <laughs> would quash us in the West if they had the opportunity to come compete against us. And Claire, obviously, you've spent a ton of time in front of these businesses, working with them, seeing them build. What is behind that? Behind that word aggression and competition, what specifically are Chinese companies doing differently and or better that leads to that? competitive edge, that competitive spirit, that aggression? It's funny because the word aggression or winning, it almost sounds like this negative. I take this view that it comes from this strong sense of camaraderie and teamwork with your crew that's going to build something with you. Just the language around companies when, whether it's building engineers who are creating a cleaning program to keep people safe during COVID. It's not how do we keep tenants safe? It's how do we get to victory over this virus? And if it's companies that are building and a, and a startup that's getting started, it's how do we get to the top of the mountain together? I mean, there is this language of this heroic fight of creating something. And so I think there is this surface understanding where people will say, oh, this all comes from scarcity and China's economy is growing so fast. And I kind of take this other way of this sense of community and winning and, and togetherness. Ron, what would you say? I think that is true. I think you're exactly right, Claire. But that's the way the generals motivate the army. But between the armies, they hate each other. So <laughs> I would argue that we're both correct. This is the way the common goal of mission-oriented structures is strong. It's generals leading their troops to battles. And this is why in Alibaba, this old leadership is deified. They're like the ancient heroes. In fact, I find it beautiful. It's beautifully seeped in old Chinese culture. It's quite beautiful in my opinion. It's like the generals leading the troops to battle, this community and purpose of winning. It's very meta in the way they think about stuff. It's very philosophical. But between armies, there can be no survivors. It's me versus them. Right. And so uh, I actually think we're both correct. We're just looking at it in two different ways. Because again, it's just not the scarcity value, but China as a culture, in my observation, is extraordinarily competitive. And again, because the country is a young country that emerged from relative poverty in a relatively short period of time. Until the 1990s, 
you know, it's funny, right? We talk about the brick economies. I grew up in India and I've worked in China and, and you go to China, China shouldn't be a brick economy. That's an old term. China is so far ahead, it's not even funny. And so it came to this relative point of prosperity in 30 years. That change is an aggressive change. And so many things got appended in that period. You went from a relatively poor socialist country to what I call Chinese version of capitalism with world-beating ambitions. And so I think that is the reason for we have to win at all costs kind of attitude. But think about the US. Take Uber as a company, right? Uber, well-known to be incredibly competitive in what they do. Amazon, say something, the world quakes, right? They're known for that execution. I would argue that for every subsector, there are multiple competitors in China. And these waves of competitors keep coming. So the incumbents can never rest. So they're always aggressive. The minute there is weakness, there is death. The minute that people will sniff you out, they'll kill you. That's just the way it is, right? Almost every business sector. And therefore, part of the way they have dealt with this is companies that do well, they have such a pride on execution speed and intensity. I mean, there's this concept called 996, which has a bad connotation because people die of exhaustion and of crazy hard work. But this intensity of culture, the intensity of work, nine to nine, six days a week, that is just inbuilt in these companies. And we don't see that in US companies, right? And then the other piece is, of course, building a very deep connection with local and central governments. That's the third piece that I don't think people talk about too much. Government relations are so important to building great Chinese companies. And so I think Claire is right. It's not maybe a scarcity mentality. And I agree with her completely. It's this mission to win. But the only thing I would argue is I think that's the internal view, like the general leading his troops to the army versus uh, take no prisoners attitude. I'm curious in the West that we've got this now very mature, developed language for sources of competitive advantage in Western companies. How different is that language for companies in China? You said differently, the seven powers or the five forces or you know whatever framework you want to use. Do you think, Ram, that it's the same driving factors that lead to success and or failure, or are there more unique, relevant attributes of sustainable competitive advantage in China versus the West? I think the seven powers framework, which I follow somewhat religiously, is universal in nature, right? But I do think the weighting of those companies are different in different countries. So if you think about that last piece of operational process power that I don't know why Hamilton put it at the end, I think it's one of the most important ones. I would argue that a couple of those have very high weightage in China. So branding. I don't know. China's an immature country still in many ways, right? Are there any historical brands from China that matter? No, I'm going to argue there are going to be hundreds of new brands built over the next, you know, 30 to 50 years, right? So branding, maybe not that much. Switching costs, they make it very easy to switch. So the switching costs are not very high across internet companies in China. But I think if there's one thing that jumps out to me is scale economics really matter in China. The first part of Hamilton's framework and then the operational process cover. So I think if you had to weight them, they'd be, my, my, again, I haven't done the work, but I suspect they would be weighted different in China versus the US. The execution and scale are the two big things that would jump out to me in my observation. So what do you think, now that the West has had more time and will have more time to watch Alibaba grow and evolve, You talk about this concept of mission and the ethos between East and West. What can the West learn from Alibaba? I would say that user experience in China and the U.S. are so fundamentally different. 
or user experiences and user expectations. So in America, what do we love? My analyst this morning, he used this amazing expression. He said, the Beatles white album UI, very clean, very non-complicated, very streamlined, very Apple-like products. We love using Apple in this country, right? Is the Beatles white album UI. I would say that's boring, really boring. The Chinese consumer, first of all, they are native mobile and native internet users. They just want the bazaar-like experience. You know, I go to Reddit and I've been going to Reddit after the Wall Street bets saga in January. I never really went before that. I actually cannot figure out Reddit for the most part. It's just too confusing even for me. There's too much stuff going on there that, you know, me as an, an old fogey probably doesn't really quite get it. But in China, it's all about the bazaar, like in your face, the colors, the fireworks. It's like, hey, come here, you see this, right? So fundamentally, I think our e-commerce companies are boring, really boring. Amazon makes me fall asleep. It's utilitarian, does the job, but that will change. Why is that changing? Well, fundamentally, because we have social companies realizing that after they've made $85 billion in advertising like Facebook, well, what's the next big $100 billion opportunity? Well, it's going to be commerce. So what did they do? Where did they turn on commerce for the first time? On Instagram, not on the Facebook blue app, on Instagram. So then what happens? Then Pinterest comes on, then TikTok comes to the US. And now people are now realizing, huh, it's actually much more fun. In fact, that is our virtual shopping mall online. I mean, malls were fun in the US. It was a social time you spent. You didn't go there for utility, you went to hand there. So first thing I would see is with social companies turning on commerce, my best guess is shopping in America will become more fun again. It won't be boring. Number two, because of companies like TikTok, what is the big driver there? And Patreon and Clubhouse and everything else, you're seeing the creator economy explode, right? And if the creator economy explodes, Everyone becomes a micro entrepreneur and you then have influencers. Well, that drives a lot of the shopping trends in America, very similar to how influencers drive shopping trends in China. So that's what I think from a commerce perspective, we may likely evolve to over time, but doesn't mean Amazon doesn't go in. Amazon cannot evolve its way into that fun shopping experience, but they don't have to. Other companies will evolve. And I think we're going to copy a lot of these behaviors from China, which is good. I have to squeeze in a prediction question on this because you talk about the fun of shopping and the digital world and it moving and how it's changing. So does this mean people will come back to malls? How does this relate then back to the West on the physical real estate? So traditional malls with boring stuff don't stand a chance, right? Malls are experiential, fun ways of doing things, right? People will go back. I think a subset of malls in America will survive, actually. But they will just look very different. There'll be more entertainment and food and fun and arcades and maybe more of like showcases where you can look at the newest products and then scan QR code, click deliver to your house when you go back home. That's what you will see. So we are over mall in this country. And obviously the mall footprint of this country will go down by probably half in the next 20 years. Now, there's no question about that in my mind, but it's not going to ever go down to zero. What we will see is those places repurposed to much more fun things because shopping is fun. It's not like in China. Shopping should be an experience, right? Like I remember growing up in Asia and My mom would go out to shop in the bazaar because going and selecting tomatoes and haggling with the guy is fun for whatever reason. But people love it. And I think people are very 
similar in different parts of the world. Like we're more similar than we think we're different. And especially think about young people growing up in different parts of the world. They look very similar to each other because they all were brought up on the same mobile native internet first. They use more or less the same apps, global apps growing up. And so they look and feel and think and learn the same. Look at this podcast, right? Your podcast is listened to by people in a hundred places in the world. This wasn't the case 20 years ago. So this is just back to democratization of knowledge. And I suspect that people will look more similar in 20 years. And therefore the applications that serve them will have to be more similar. And I think they converse with the Chinese view in the world than the American view in the world, which is very boring right now. There's a book by Parag Khanna called Connectography. And it puts this idea that lines on a map aren't what matter anymore. It's the connections that come from the internet and a mobile experience and when and how places move through geography that hits on a lot of what you're saying. And so I guess I'm going to hit with the last question, which is if we want to learn more about Alibaba or what they're seeing or what they're thinking about, where would we go? What should we read? I think the book to read is Alibaba, The House That Jack Ma Built. It's reasonably accurate. Duncan Clark, who wrote it, did a good job of it. And if you wanted an easy read about the history of Alibaba and what this legendary entrepreneur did, because this guy is legendary. He doesn't deserve to have built Alibaba, but he did. It is an astonishing story of grit and persistence and just being at it for a long time. Ram, you've been amazing. This has been so much fun to dig into. And we've touched so many different pieces of Alibaba and the business. I feel like we've only even scratched the surface. That's the idea. Peak the interest. <laughs> Peak the interest. Thank you so much for your time. This was such a blast. Really appreciate it, Ram. Thanks, Ram. Thank you for joining us for this breakdown of Alibaba with Ram Parmes Warren. Ram has me thinking about what American companies can learn from Chinese companies. What strikes me most from our conversation is how underdeveloped and boring our e-commerce is compared to what Chinese companies are doing. Our massive social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Reddit, and so on are only scratching the surface of pushing commerce onto their websites and making them fun. Ram's concept of the virtual experiential shopping mall is something that many American companies should be studying from China. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 